style. It's just it, it's funny. I even feel like people that didn't grow up in the church or have any background, for some reason, they even know the words to that song. So, um, really neat. So, thank you guys for leading us this morning. Uh, we haven't done this in a while, but within Origins, uh, the, the hourglass is a big deal for us. Like, you know, the fact that Jesus pours into us, and then we get to flip it over, pour into someone else. So, it's a picture of discipleship for us, and, and so, you know, it's just, man, it's, it's so intrinsic. But every now and then, we'll hand out these super expensive um, plastic versions of these that are unbreakable. That's why they're so pricey, and you buy them in bulk. Uh, just for people that have understood, like, and Neil and I had this conversation this week that I think growing up, if we grew up in, in the church and maybe in the South, I didn't grow up anywhere else, so I can only speak to my Southern experience, but I think we grew up believing that church was a place that you attended, it was something that you did, it was an event on a calendar, and therefore you believed that you could come, you could sit, you could walk out and not do anything different every other day. But what we've come to realize, like if we read Scripture and we read Acts, church is actually described as a family, and as a result of being a family, there's stuff to do. And so it's not just about Sunday, it's about a lot of things, but like even in our house, like we talk to our kids, like if we're going to live in this house together and be a family, you're going to have jobs, like you're going to take out the trash, you're going to wash the dishes, you might not do it great, but you're going to do it. And even if they complain, like, man, family does work if we're in it together. And like Bama Adams, you, come on up, (laughs) this guy, he gets it, like he does. And this is not to make anybody else feel bad, but man... (laughs) I love you. This guy shows up with or without his boys, single dad, brings them, puts them to work. He works, never complains, never asks, hey, do you need me? He's just there. And I, man, I appreciate you. We appreciate you. We're better because of you. And so thank you, man. Thank you. It's fun to make an athlete like Bama tear up, you know, because, you know, as tough guys, we never do that. So anyway, Bama, we love you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for, uh, man, just setting such a good example even for me of just, man, showing up and, and doing the work, never saying a word about it, man, and wearing bright enough colors that we can always pick you out. We appreciate that. Uh, so yeah, talk to Bama. Give him a hug. He loves that. Uh, we're back in our Influencer Series today. We're, we're about to wrap it up. Uh, today... We're going we're gonna to look at a passage that I probably reference a lot because, it, to me, it's, um, man, it's so pivotal for what it means to be someone of missional focus, someone that values mission, someone that thinks on missional levels. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John chapter 4. And, and it's a big passage, and even praying this morning, I, I, I was just kind of talking to God, and I said, God, uh, you know my heart in this passage, and you know how much I love it. Uh, to be honest, even like my first, my first semester in Bible college, I had to do a project on this passage, and it was like a semester grade, and I did really good on it, so, um, which was rare for me in school. But it's just one of these passages that, man, God's used greatly in my life, and so I, I like to know a lot about it. And my prayer this morning was, God, don't let me tell everything I know about this passage. Let me talk about what we need to hear today. And so that's the goal. Uh, we are going to read chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 all the way through the end of this big section, but we're just going to talk about this idea, and here's the end goal. Like, if we are to be an influence for Jesus, and we are, what does that look like? Where does it start? 
Um, and you're going to hear some familiar things. Like if you've been around with us for a while, you're going to hear some familiar language, but that's okay. I think uh, the more we say it, the more apt we are to remember it and the more apt we are to do it. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in and read, um, man, about this very surprising influencer that we find in this passage. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Um, God, we thank you that as a result of Jesus, we can know you, and as a result of your word, we can know you uh, in your truest form. I pray that we would look at it well this morning, that it would speak to us, um, and God, it would make us look more and more like the church uh, you have borne us into and who you desire us to be. Thank you for loving us, and it's in your son's name we pray, amen. So chapter 4, verse 1 of John, it will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, you don't own one, there are several on the table back there. They may be a little bit dog-eared, but you can take them, make them your own, write in them, decorate them however you want, and take them home. And if you want a nice one and you don't have one, man, would you talk to us? I'll be glad to buy you a Bible that you can take and hold. And nothing wrong with the one on your phone, but I just, I like to hold one. So we'll do that for you. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, uh, or that Jesus was making more, making more and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. We'll pick up in verse 7 in just a second. So the setting here is the Pharisees were grumbling. They were getting upset. Uh, they already did not like John the Baptist, but Baptist because he was baptizing a lot of professing uh, you know, true Jews, and they were seeing a way beyond the religious establishment, and they were looking towards this Messiah that would come. When they found out that Jesus was even, or his disciples rather, were baptizing more than John, they got a little more grumbly, a little more upset, and so Jesus said, it's getting hot here, it's time to go. And so if we had a map... They would be at the southern part of it. If we're looking at modern-day Palestine, or Palestine during Jesus' time, they would be at the bottom, and north of them would be Galilee, and Samaria would be sitting in between. And so what would generally happen if you were a well-thinking Jewish individual, um, the thing in your brain that would seem simple would be a straight shot because you would think that it would be shorter. But in reality, they didn't do that. Most of the time, uh, they would hook a left, and they would go down to the Jordan River Valley. They would hug the river, go up, and then come back towards Galilee because Jews and Samaritans didn't get along passage is even going to tell us this in just a second. A lot of history there, but it goes back to the fact that Samaritans uh, in reality were basically Jews plus some other things. And it wasn't about uh, lineage, and it wasn't about uh, actually where people came from, but it was about how people worshipped. And so several generations previous to this, Jewish people had begun to mix beliefs and mix ideas and mix lifestyle with other people that had been planted in Judea, and, and now they look different. They thought differently. They worshiped differently. They had even gone back and changed part of Scripture, which was a big no-no, and as a result, there was major tension between Jews and Samaritans. Most Jews would have called Samaritans dogs, which meant that they were less than people, and so on both sides, it wasn't a right and wrong. They were both wrong, but either way, major tension. And so if a Jewish person was walking through Samaria and they were not paying attention, there was a good chance that they could get robbed, they could get beaten, they could get mugged, um, Central Park kind of stuff, not good. And so most of the time, instead of going through Samaria from Jerusalem or Judea, they would go down to the Jordan River Valley, or if you're looking at a map, you'd go this way. Uh, but Jesus, in this passage, uh, it's interesting that it says he had to pass through Samaria. So he comes to the town of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. If they had left at 5 a.m. and hoofed it all day long uh, in the, the heat that persisted, they would have been, that's how long it would have taken them to get there. So they, I mean, and that's at a good click. That's not a leisurely stroll. This is not a Sunday afternoon walk. Like, this is hoofing it, like really booking it to get there by noon. And so they get to this well by noon, a place for water, a place for rest. And Jesus was, like we talked last week during the temptation, Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. And his man side at this point, he was tuckered out. He was tired. He was thirsty. And so he finds himself sitting here. Verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Told you. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so the pattern of life back then, culturally, the way it was, is you didn't have internal plumbing. You didn't even have a well outside. Most towns had one. This one was slightly outside the city, and it was historic, and so they wanted to keep it. But they didn't just leave. You know, most of the time we picture a well with its, its nice and stoned and built, and it had a pulley on the top, and you, everybody would draw from the same bucket. But you didn't do that back then because you didn't want anybody taking your water. So you would travel with a bucket. You would travel with a rope. You would lower it down. You would draw your own water. You would get enough water to go for the entire day. Most of the time, you would do it at one of two times. You would do it in the evening or in the morning. You would do it in the morning to have water for the whole day and it wasn't hot, or you'd do it in the evening so that you could do what you need to do that night and have water for the most of the rest of the day. This woman was there at noon. We've already seen that. And so Jesus begins to talk to her, and the first thing that he says is, "Um, would you get, get some water for me? I'm thirsty. And She looked at him, and she was surprised because this was a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. There was something not normal about this because, again, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. And to be honest, a Jewish male talking to a Samaritan female, another level of odd, not normal. And so he spoke to her, and he said, give me water. Now, I'll go ahead and say this. Like, the point of this, like, yes, Jesus was thirsty, but Jesus also had a plan and a reason for asking her what he asked, and he asked her for water, and she was shocked. She was just shocked of, why are you speaking to me? And so, as the conversation persists, obviously, um, he turns it. He says, yes, I ask you for water, but if you knew who you were talking to, if you could understood who you were talking to, you would ask me for what I can give you. See, you have a bucket and a rope to get the water in this well, but me, I am keenly equipped and solely equipped to give you something that you need that you can't get for yourself. In this passage, the beauty, the reason that I love this passage is because really, like from verbal response kind of an idea in a conversational way, Jesus for the first time is laying out the gospel. Like, in in these interesting terms that we wouldn't understand, like if we're just reading it as bystanders, like for the very first time, he is making us aware and letting us know that there is something that he can give us that we cannot get otherwise. 
And so he tells her, he's like, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for what I can give you, for what I only can give you. And he used the water phrase, the living water, like the purest form of water, the water that brings life. And so obviously she was like, well, yeah, I'd, I'd love some of that. Tell me how I can get that so I will never, ever be thirsty again. Because, you know, this is tiresome, like to walk out of town, to lower the rope, to grab the water, to walk it back into town. Like, this is wearing me out. Give me some of that water. She still wasn't getting the metaphor, and that's okay. Jesus spoke in metaphor a lot for, to let the Spirit do the job that only the Spirit could do, so she wasn't getting it. A couple other things. Like, I, I do think that we need to point out the, man, just the oddities that exist in this passage, the, the odd truths that exist. Number one, Jewish male talking to a Samaritan female um, shouldn't happen. But number two, the type of woman that we're dealing with that we don't even know yet, but we're getting clues. Number, the, the first clue that we get, she's at the well at noon. Not your normal time to draw water. She would be going to the well at noon so that she would not see anybody else. Because nobody's going to draw water at the hottest part of the day. They're going to get it in the morning. They're going to get it in the evening because that makes sense. She went there to avoid people. She needed water. She didn't want to see people. So Jesus offers her something, something that she can't get for herself. And she's like, of course, I'll take that. The woman said to her, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And so she wasn't getting the metaphor, so here's what Jesus does in verse 16. <laughs> yeah, it just it gets me every time. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, she said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that I have no husband, for you've had five, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she goes out to point a little bit about her practices. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming, and neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And so Jesus, very aptly, will come to the next verse. Like she wasn't getting what he was offering. She wasn't understanding that he was offering something that wasn't literal water, but he was offering something eternal, something that she couldn't draw from any well that she had ever seen. He was the well. He had the only bucket. He had the only rope. And he's letting her know, I'm the only one that can give this to you. So she didn't understand. So what he did is he took her mind off of drinking water and he turned it to something internal and he said, go call your husband. And for those of us who are sitting here, many of us are like, wow, that was really judgmental, Jesus. That was, that's really harsh to point out our flaws. But the problem is we have to understand we're not talking about water. We're talking about our heart. And our biggest need of our heart is not that we need water that we can drink that will sustain us to keep us from dehydrating and dying in seven days. The biggest need of our heart is that we have a sin problem, and no matter what we call it, no matter if we call it judgmental, no matter if we call it fundamental, it doesn't matter. The problem is sin keeps us from God, and the only solution is for Jesus to be our will, for Jesus to give us the water. And so we had to turn our mind away from water and point out that why he is here is for what she needs here. And so he pointed her towards her sin. Because ultimately, 
the thing that keeps me from God is the thing that I am incapable of not doing before Jesus, and that is my sin. Those are those places that I have missed the mark. And she would have been well aware of the mark. Even though the Samaritans had taken Scripture and they had twisted some locations and changed a few things, the law would have been normal talk for her. It would have been everyday conversation in her village, even though she was a woman that went to the well at noon for the exact reason that Jesus pointed out to draw her attention to what he's talking about. Go call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. You've said right. You don't. You've had five. And the guy you're living with now, shacking up with now, he's not even your husband. And she's like, well, you must be a prophet. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she starts to talk about her worship practices and, and the locations of things. And he's like, no, no, no. You've got to understand. It's not about the water. It's not about the place. It's about what's true. And it's about who's true. It's not about the water, it's not about the place, it's about what's true, and it's about who's true. He's talking about spirit and in truth. He's like, look, here's the thing, um, yeah, it doesn't matter where you're going to be, the day is coming. As a matter of fact, it's here right now where God is seeking, like that's an idea phrase that we need to latch on to, God is coming after people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He's not asking them to perform better, He's not asking them to understand the law better, no, He is going after people to draw them to Himself so that they may worship Him in spirit, who He is, and also in truth, knowing who he is. And then she says, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. I know that one who's promised to save us. Even the Samaritans knew about the prophecies there, going back 700 plus years. Going all the way back, honestly, to Genesis chapter 3 and 4, to be honest, if we're looking well. But she says, like, I know the Messiah is coming. And then Jesus says this in verse 26. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, that's not the way that we would phrase it. Basically, what he said is, I am. That's it. Like, I am. Now, I am would have gone back, and it would have immediately called her attention to Old Testament ideas about the nomenclature, the naming of God, personal name of God. But he basically just said, I'm, I'm him. I'm it. So it started with, ma'am, can I have some water? Don't misread that first passage where he says, woman, give me water. He's not being disrespectful. Jesus also talks to his mother like that. And Jesus was not disrespectful, but it was like, ma'am, may I have some water? And it goes all the way from there to, I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for. I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for. Verse 27, we'll come back to it. It says, this, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Woo! It's worth noting that she came to the well for water. It's all she wanted, and she left her means to get it. But anyway, I'll stop nerding out there. She went into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, teacher, Rabboni, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. 
For here the saying holds, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you, you have entered into their labor. And so not only do I love this passage because it's Jesus actually pitching out for the first time that I have something that you need that you can't get unless it's through me, the gospel in its purest form, but he's also laying out to the disciples, it's not about food, it's not about water, it's to be obedient to the calling of God. And here's the calling of God, to see people come to know and love and follow him. He used the agrarian kind of a mindset. He's like, hey, don't you say that there are four months between the sowing and the harvesting? I'm telling you to look around. Look around. The fields, they are ready to be harvested. It says they are white with harvest. And that idea, if you looked out at a field and it was, it was nice and white, it meant to you that it was time to go out and gather your harvest. He said, look, this has been going on before you. It started before you, and it is time. We need to go and gather those who will believe, who will worship in spirit and truth. So not only is the gospel here, but the mission's here, right here. And so keep going. Verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony of he has told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The third thing that exists in this passage, and the reason that I love it so much, the gospel is there, the mission is there, but also our very first missionary is there, our very first missionary, and it was a Samaritan woman. And if that doesn't kick you in the pants, then you're not listening. It was a Samaritan woman, a dog by Jewish standards, a less than because she was woman, to be honest, due to the culture, and she was the first person to leave her bucket, to leave her rope, and just go tell people, you have to come and meet this guy who just told me everything that I've ever done. And then they believed. The gospel, the mission, and our first missionary. I think we have so many false assumptions about what church is for, like we just do. And, and I think they're a natural byproduct of our humanity. I think they're a natural byproduct of our culture. Uh, I'm not saying they're a good byproduct, but I think we come by them naturally. I think that we do believe that we are a part of something called the Big C Church just so that we can be better, just so that we can be fulfilled, just so that there's an, understand that there's an itch that we can't scratch that gets scratched, okay? Now, all of those are good things, but the problem is it's insufficient truth. It's incomplete truth. If we look here and we listen well, we have to understand that we have been brought into this family because there was something that we couldn't fix, and it was only Jesus, and he's called our attention to it. And the fact is, it's sin. I cannot eradicate, erase, or refuse to believe that my sin has cost me a relationship with God. It's just the way that it is. I have to understand that. I don't have to buy into it, but I have to know it to be true. That my sin, even one, would keep me from a perfect, holy God. And then not only that, I also have to understand that I'm brought into this family because there's work to do. Yes, there was refining in me to take place. There is sanctification in me to take place. But there is a harvest that is waiting to be gathered. And the work began long before I said, I believe. The work began long before Jesus said, it's finished. The work began when God's passion began for His people, His creation, His workmanship, His masterpiece. He began then to seek out a way to redeem what was lost. 
and we've been brought into that. See, this whole idea of influence, it's, it's, it's not about gaining followers for ourselves. This whole idea of influence is not about uh, gaining popularity. No, this whole idea of influence is that God has done something in me, and He wants to do it in other people, and the way that He achieves that is through the words that come out of our mouth and the lives that we live. And this woman, as unlikely as she was, she was the first that we saw do it. As unlikely as she was, as ill-equipped as she was, by culture's terms as, man, untouchable as she was, she was the one that realized my water is no longer that valuable. I don't even care about it anymore. All I care about is telling the people around me what I've seen, what I've heard, and what I want them to see and what I want them to hear, and then let God do with that what He will. Like for us, man, our language is uh, we need to share our stories. We talk about it a lot. You'll hear about it a ton. We hand out paperwork for it a lot, but just our stories of what was my life like before God, how did He grab my attention, uh, how did I respond, and what's my life been like since? Just those four questions right there. But I think before we do that, this is what I wanted to say today. I think there are, there are just three questions that we need to understand if we expect our influence to be uh, utilized in the harvest. And the first was this. I think the question needs to be asked and it needs to be answering us. What exactly has Jesus done for me? What has Jesus done for me? For this woman, we see that the tangible fruits of what Jesus has done, she went back, and this is what she said. She said, you need to come and see this guy who told me everything I've ever done. Now, for us, the equivalent to that would be, man, Jesus pointed out all my sins. And that's not fun. It's not. Like, nobody, nobody leads with that. Like, let me tell you about this Jesus. He showed me everything I've ever done that was wrong. Is that wrong to say? No, it's not wrong to say. For this woman, it is exactly what she needed to turn her eyes away from water and turn it towards Jesus. It's exactly what she needed. Maybe for you. Maybe for you. That's the thing that you go to and you say, hey, that was, that was the first thing that I remember that Jesus had done. He pointed out to me that I wasn't perfect, that I had erred, that I had sinned according to Scripture, that I was not good enough. Maybe that was it. And that's what you share. If that's what he did for you to grab your attention, then absolutely, by all means, that's what you share, and you expect him to use it because he did that to you for a reason, for his purpose, and for his glory. So you share that. Yeah, I understand, not popular in culture to go out and say, man, this Jesus whom I love, this Jesus whom I worship, the reason that I do, how he got my attention, is he pointed out to me everything I'd ever done wrong, and it was a long list. It was rough. But if that was you, then, then you share that. that. That was what she did. That's what Jesus did for the woman. But maybe for you, it's, it's, it's not just that. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe he changed your identity. Maybe the way that he grabbed your attention is he told you that, man, you're not like this, whatever that may be. You're not an addict. You know, maybe, maybe he told you that you're not worthless. Maybe he told you that you, it doesn't matter if you're single. He changed your identity from, from failure to heir of the king. Maybe he changed your, it doesn't matter. Whatever he changed your identity to in light of Scripture from sinner to saint, whatever variation that looks like, as long as it matches up with this, maybe that's how he grabbed your attention. Maybe that's what he did for you, and you go back and you say, that's what he did. That's what drew my heart to his. Maybe for you, he, uh, he did. Maybe he freed you from addiction. Man, we work with, with Miracle Hill, and 
And we go in on Thursdays, uh, Zach leads that, and I get to participate in that, which is great, and just talk to people who are living uh, at the rescue mission downtown, and the majority of them have an addiction story. And a lot of them now praise Jesus as a result of what Miracle Hill's doing. They also have a restoration story. And they get to say, this is what Jesus has brought me from. One of my favorite people, one of my best friends now, as a result of just getting to know him and seeing the gospel transform his life. Uh, formerly, that was him. And to hear him talk about that, man, it's huge. It's a big deal to be freed from addiction. But in order to be freed from addiction, you had to be, it had to be pointed out that you had it first. Same way with sin. Same way for this woman. For her to be freed from that sin, she had to be told that she was a sinner. Same way for identity. Man, maybe you were a person that struggled to have peace, and Jesus has offered that for the very first time. Maybe the first time you ever heard that you may have peace and peace everlasting, peace overcoming, was from Jesus. And you needed to hear it. And as a result of that, your heart, his heart, knit together. Maybe that's what he did. Maybe for you, you never, you never had a purpose beyond yourself. You never had a reason to get up beyond yourself, beyond your own stuff. And Jesus has begun to wreck that and change that and show you that, man, uh, by the way, it's not about food, not about water. No, it's about the mission. It's about this purpose, the purpose that started before you were even a glimmer in your mother's eye. Maybe Jesus is the first person to ever give you real purpose that was beyond yourself. Whatever it is, if we hope to share our story in such a way in which it's going to influence people, it's not about making it compelling. It's about being honest and using what God has done in us so that other people may hear and turn and repent and confess and declare Jesus as Lord. What he's done in you, he can do in someone else. But we have to see it first. So we have to ask the question, what is Jesus done for me. This woman, it was simple. She was just like, so the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and she said to the people, come and see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the one we've been waiting for? The second question is this, who needs to hear? Who needs to hear? Jesus told his disciples in this, in the place that we see the mission, he was like, look around. You're standing in the middle of the harvest. This woman, she understood too. I mean, she did. Like for us, I think, I think a lot of times we pray, God, show me, show me that one person that needs to hear about the gospel today. And I'm not making fun of our frivolous prayers. I'm not. I'm making fun of my frivolous prayers. But, man, this woman, you know what she did? She went back to the people that she was around every single day. Who needs to hear? Very likely, just open your eyes. We're standing in the middle of a field. We're standing in the middle of a field, and the buds are popping, and they're saying, harvest me. Harvest me. That's life. Man, you can't deny that. In downtown Greenville, I mean, studies even 10 years ago, 90% of people living in this zip code on Sunday mornings are nowhere in a place of worship. Now, we can't, we can't know everything about a person just based on the fact of whether or not they worship, but we can make some assumptions if they're not in a place worshiping Jesus because they feel that it's necessary being around other people who are doing the same thing. It's very likely that they don't know him at all. 90%, that was 10 years ago. I can promise you the number's higher now. Guaranteed open our eyes. We're standing in the middle of a field, and it's begging to be harvested based on the work that's been done before we even got here. I love the peace that that gives, too. Jesus is even saying, look, hey, the legwork, it's already been done. All you got to do is open your eyes, and don't get, all, don't get all hurt about it if somebody else harvests what you've worked for, either. I remember one of my, man, one of the craziest things when I was, when we were living in Columbia, um, I took a 5 a.m. client, personal trainer, you know, first career kind of a thing. I took a 5 a.m. client because he was lost, to be honest. And, and I took that client because he was as lost as lost could be. And I didn't want to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go train somebody. I was a college student. I was a newlywed. I didn't want to do that at all. I had no desire to do that. 
and I needed the money, but not that bad. But God spoke to me. He's like, this guy's lost. Two years trained this guy. And not just trained this guy, but man, to be honest, I was probably bolder with this guy than anybody that I've ever been. And he was as lost as anybody that I've ever been with. I mean, just completely, utterly, if there's degrees of lostness, he was fully, completely lost. And, and I kept praying for that time. God, when? When do you want me to, like, really, you know, bring it home? And uh, one of my professors who was an evangelism just master, he even, he even taught evangelism, he would meet with businessmen in the city and people that God kind of directed him to. And I met him in the admin building one day. He was like, hey, Matthew, I want to tell you about a friend of yours that I met last week. We sat down, we had a conversation, and guess what? He gave his life to Jesus. I was upset. I was. I'll be honest. I was upset. I was like, what? And I even said it. And this was one of my professors at the time. I was like, are you serious? And I was a bit indignant. And then I, I pulled back a minute, and I was like, you know what? That's great. That's great. But even then, I realized that, man, the harvest is not my job. It's a purpose, but it's not my job. Um, but yeah, he knows Jesus. Fills your white with harvest. Open our eyes. Look around. And maybe, maybe we have to do this before that ever happens. Maybe we have to say, God, I can't see. I'm as blind as a, I'm just as blind as blind can be. Just let me see. Let me see who needs to hear what you have done in me so that I can tell it to them and let you do the rest. Third question. And this one we've kind of already answered. But how do I get them? to him. How do I get them to him? If I've prayed, who are they? How do I get them to him? Here's the Sunday school answer. You bring them to church. That's all well and good. And I'll be honest, if you're a new believer and you don't know how to articulate the gospel, that's fine. You bring them here. But let me, let me push you a little bit. All this woman had was an encounter 15 minutes ago and she ran straight home and she told him everything that she just encountered. If the gospel has been made alive in you, guess what? You've already been equipped to share it. And you say, well, that's not possible. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And he's the one who does the calling. If the gospel new life has been placed in me, it's been placed in me so that I can flip it over and pass it on to someone else, regardless of how long I've been in the saddle. doesn't matter. Now, are you going to know all the ins and outs? Nope, you're not, but you're going to know your experience. You're going to know this is what Jesus has done for me. Uh, you're going to know these are the people that need to hear it, and let me tell you what, what's just happened. But sure, bring them here on Sunday. They're going to hear about Jesus. Bring them to a community group when they relaunch. They're going to hear about Jesus. Bring them to the men's Bible study on Wednesday morning, the women's Bible study when it starts back, the men's Bible study on Tuesday nights. You can bring them even to Miracle Hill on Thursdays at 2 o'clock. And, and guess what? They're going to hear the gospel there. It's going to be spoken to another group of people. But if they're a dude and they want to get in, they can come in. Abby and Sarah Bonner are leading a Bible study at Shepherd's Gate, a women's shelter in town. Hey, they need volunteers. You need to be cleared, but you can go and you can do it. Fields are white with harvest. We were not put here so that we can feel better about ourselves. We were not grafted into family where family was not so that we get a stamp on our card and we just get to go straight to heaven. God's not about relocation. He's about redemption, and he redeemed us for a purpose, not a place at the table. Now, we get a place at the table as a byproduct, and that's amazing. But there's still a lot of seats. And he wants to fill them. And his, man, method A, there is no plan B. His plan A is through the words, the life, the action, and the mission that he's placed us on. And we get to be the ones to share it. 
I think for far too long, to be honest, and granted, I'm a pastor and I grew up in the church for far too long, and this is not an indictment on anyone here, but I'm just saying as a, just a student of the culture, for far too long, we've expected people that have letters in front of their names and letters after their names that are related to pastoral ministry, we've expected that they're the ones that do the harvesting. When the fact of the matter is, that's the job of all of us that have been called into this mission through the blood of Jesus, sealed by the Spirit of God and equipped with the Holy Spirit. Every one of us are called into the mission, whether you're six or whether you're 66 or 106. If the Spirit of the living God is in you, the mission has been placed before you, and we all get to participate. Different places, different times, all for the same reason. And we just ask, what has Jesus done for me? Who needs to hear it? And how do I get them to him? Let me pray, and we'll talk about what's next. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. And God, we thank you for a woman whose name we don't even know, whose characteristics we do, but even in spite of those, you used her uh, so that an entire village would come to know you as Savior and Lord. God, we're all just as unlikely. I mean, as a result of our sin that we were incapable of not doing before you, God, we're all just as unlikely. God, thank you for equipping the called and not trusting in us to make ourselves worthy. Thank you, Jesus, that you offer us something that we can't get for ourselves, because if we could, it wouldn't be worth it, and it wouldn't be salvific. Thank you for being you. And God, thank you for a mission that existed before we said we believe, and God, you pulled us into that, grafted us into that family. I pray that we would see it. I pray that we would live it. And God, I pray that you would receive the glory from it, whether anyone ever knows what we've done or not. God, I thank you for loving us, and I thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Over the next uh, song, uh, we're going to have communion today. It's the first Sunday of the month, and we do that just kind of as a pattern of worship. Um, and, and here's the deal with communion at our church, if you're a guest today. Uh, it's an open table, and so anyone is free to take communion. This is what Scripture tells us about communion, though. Uh, it is us looking at two things, looking back at the sacrifice that Jesus made so that we could be made right with God, but it's also looking forward to the fact that he's going to come back and make everything just right in the way that only he can. And as a result of that, we take communion if two things are true. One, uh, we are linked to God through Jesus, by, through, by grace, through faith. That's a confession of Jesus as Lord, seeing our sin, acknowledging that, turning from it, and actually turning to Jesus to be the Lord of our life. And, and we're free to take communion then as a means of celebrating together. But number two, uh, Paul goes on later to talk about communion in just such a way of saying, look, we also need to be in good standing with God. So if there's unconfessed sin in our life before we take communion, even though it seems like just juice and bread, it's a big deal, um, we need to deal with our sin first. And we need to just tell God, God, I don't need you to forgive me so that I can be welcomed back into eternity. I'm already there, but what I do need is I need restoration of that relationship. I'm sorry that I've sinned against you. Here is what it is. Please forgive me and keep me from that and be willing to turn from it, confession, repentance, and then we're free to take communion. Over the next song, uh, if you just want to get up and go and, and take that when you want, you're free to do that. Um, and if you feel that you can't do that today, just stay, just stay where you are, and that's fine. Uh, would rather be honest than, than lying. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just the truth about it. Um, and then after that, Neil's going to close us uh, with a, a scripture reading benediction, and we'll be gone for the day. Thank you guys for being here. I'm going to bless communion, and then uh, we're going to worship. God, we love you. Thank you, God, that we get to look back at what Jesus has done, but we also get to look forward to what he's going to do 
and complete in fullness. Uh, God, thank you for calling those of us who know you uh, into a relationship with you. Thank you for forgiving our sins, and God, thank you for calling us into purpose. God, for those of us who are sitting here that have sin that's just kind of resting and sitting in our life, I pray that your spirit would begin to point those out now, and we would confess and we would repent of those, and God, you would, uh, you would bring back and restore that relationship that's been cracked and flawed by our sin, and God, you would free us to take communion together. God, thank you that we get to celebrate and worship as a family. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your mission, and God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.